I'm going to be in Ruth chapter 4, so if you brought your Bibles, you could turn to Ruth chapter 4, if you have them on your phone, your iPad, Ruth 4. We're going to wrap up, we've actually been in the book of Ruth for the last three weeks, this is the fourth week, we're going to wrap up our series this morning, and I've been inviting you to pretend that you are going to great-grandma's house for a visit. And once you get there, of course, all good great-grandmothers, they feed you snacks and make sure that you're not hungry in any particular way. And then you ask her to tell you her life story. You want to hear her story again about how she met her first husband who died tragically and then how uh, she went back with her mother-in-law to her dead father-in-law's hometown of Bethlehem and Judah. But she grew up as a Moabite, which kind of throws you off every time because you think of yourself as a good Jew and you've got to remind yourself, great-grandma isn't a Jew, she's actually from Moab. But she follows her mother-in-law back to Bethlehem in Judah. And while there, things weren't going too well because she had no husband, she had no father-in-law, and so they were really kind of poor and destitute. And in order to survive, she did what she could do, and that was she gleaned in fields. And one day she was gleaning in a field that belonged to a man named Boaz. That would be your great-grandpa. And so last week in, in Ruth chapter 3, we took a look at great-grandma. Uh, she shared the story about her husband's snaring plot that her mother-in-law had concocted on how it was that she was going to meet Boaz on the threshing floor, and after he had plenty to eat and, more importantly, plenty to drink, um, and when he was in a good mood, she was going to go and uncover his feet, which we talked about that last week, and basically propose to Boaz. And Boaz agreed, except for there was one problem. There is actually a relative closer than Boaz who has legally first dibs when it came to taking Ruth as his wife and being the kinsman redeemer. Now, I know if you've missed this, the whole kinsman redeemer thing, we've talked about that in weeks prior. If you missed it, go to livingstones.cc, click on the message tabs. You can hear all about it, what that means. But what Boaz basically says is, if he redeems you, if he takes you as his wife, great. But if not, you're mine. So Ruth goes back home, and she tells Naomi everything that happened. And Naomi predicts that, listen, I don't think Boaz is even going to go to sleep until he has resolved this matter, like today. So this morning, let us finish up the book of Ruth, hear the rest of great-grandma Ruth's story, and attempt to answer the question, why is this book in the Bible, and what does it mean for us? So we begin by talking about the deal that's taking place. I'll be Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. It says this. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned, bachelor number two, came along. And Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. And so he went over and he sat down. Now, in terms of environment and context, Boaz is at the city gate, the town gate. And in ancient times, that was the hub and the very center of civic affairs and of the community. It was a very significant place. Not only was the city gate a part of the city's protection against invaders, but the city gate was the place of the most central activities. It was where business transactions took place and where they were made, which, by the way, ultimately what's happening here with the story of Ruth is a business transaction. Is it a business agreement? Court was convened here, and public announcements, if they were going to be made, were heralded here at the city gate. Think of it kind of like a, a city with a, a thriving downtown district that has a courthouse, governmental offices, maybe a thriving market district, and everyone just liked to hang out there. So if you had a legal case that needed to be adjudicated, 
you would come to the city gate and there would be judges or elders of the city and they would decide your case and they would hold court, so to speak, and give you their judgment, to give you their verdict. Let me share with you another passage in the Old Testament that kind of talks about this. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 21, and I need uh, all rebellious sons, I need you to listen to this, it's very important. Deuteronomy 21 verse 18 says this, if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders, where? At the gate of his town. And they shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard, and he doesn't mow the yard, and he doesn't clean the room like we ask. <laughs> then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that escalated quickly. <laughs> I just needed him to clean his room, and now this is true. You heard that, like, some of you I know are mortified, and others of you are thinking about printing this verse off on your printer and laminating it and putting it on your refrigerator for your kids to read daily. Listen, when King David ruled, he would address his troops and give them instructions at the city gate. I don't know if you remember the story, but when Absalom, his son, dies, what happens is David leaves the city gate and he goes off into mourning. And he's in mourning for a period of time. And when the people finally see David emerge and come back to the city gate, that's when they know that's the sign that King David's period of mourning for his son is now over and he's ready to take back up the governing uh, position that he has as king. To control the gates of your enemy was to control the city. In fact, when God speaks blessings over Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 17, one of the blessings is that he would control the gates of his enemies. And when Jesus in the gospel says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it in Matthew 16, verse 18, what Jesus is saying is since the gate is that place of rulers and counselors, that all the plans and schemes of the enemy will not defeat the church. And this is where Boaz goes because he wants to strike a deal with bachelor number two. And so while Boaz is up at the city gate, guess who happens to be walking through? Well, look, it's bachelor number two the other and technically closer kinsman redeemer. So he says, hey, friend, good to see you. Have a seat. Verse 2, Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you. But I am next in line. Well, bachelor number two says, I will redeem it. Now, here's how bachelor number two knows this is serious. Because Boaz brings with him ten elders. And you would feel this too, right? Like if I show up with 10 elders behind me, that's when you're going to go, oh, <laughs> I'm in trouble, right? Or like if you're in the hospital and I show up with 10 elders, things are not going well for you. <laughs> that's, that's what's <laughs> Just kidding. Maybe. <laughs> and what we learn is Naomi is selling a piece of property that belonged to her dead husband, Elimelech, which for us goes, wait a minute, you mean Naomi owns property? 
because I thought she was destitute, like she owned land, so what's the deal here? Now, I don't know if you remember, in, in I think it was week one or two, we talked about in Israel, there was a law where property remains within a family in perpetuity, meaning forever. Now, if you found yourself on economic hard times, you could sell your property to somebody else, but it wasn't like it is today. Like if I sell my house, what happens is you pay the price, we agree, right? We agree to this price. I sell my house, I give you the deed, and what happens is it's now your house. And you do whatever you want to it. And you own it as long as you want until you decide to sell it. It's your property. That's not how it worked in Israel. There were provisions that the land, even if I had to sell it during bad economic circumstances, it would eventually come back to my family. So have you ever heard of the, the phrase, the day of Jubilee? Have you heard of that, the year of Jubilee? The year of Jubilee happened every 50 years. That was all land that got sold off from your family comes back to your family. And what you do is you figure out how many years until the next Jubilee, and that's how you charge the price of the land. It's kind of like leasing. My guess is what happened is, is uh, Elimelech and Naomi had to sell their land because of the economic famine that took place before they went to Moab. And so they went to Moab, and when Naomi returns, somebody else is in possession of the profits of the land because they had to sell it off. Now, the law also provided in Israel that if she can find the next closest relative, that relative can actually buy back the land and give it back to Naomi. It was called the kinsman redeemer. So one of the functions was I've actually got the money in my bank account to buy this land back for the family so that it could continue on in the line and in the name of the family member who died. And this is what Boaz is saying to bachelor number two. Listen, you're the next in line. If you have the money, you could buy this property, and also it will revert back then to the family of Elimelech. And so the guy said, well, you know, I'm in the mood for a real estate deal, so I'm going to go for that. And he says, yes, I'm going to buy it. Now, in that, he buys it, and verse 5 says this. Then Boaz said, <laughs> hold on, one other thing you should know. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. What he's saying is, now this won't come back in the inspection, but there's some baggage that comes with the house. You don't just get the land, you also get the widow. You are agreeing in this kinsman redeemer role to also fulfill the law of levirate marriage, meaning he will have to get Ruth pregnant, and the child that is born will legally then be under the name of Ruth's dead husband, Milan. So see how that works through the levirate law? He needs to get Ruth pregnant, and even though it will be his biological child, legally and technically that child will be raised in the name of Ruth's dead husband, Milan. Now, when he thinks about that, it gets complicated. Because what if long-term his property gets kind of messed up with their property and things would get kind of... So, verse 6, he says this. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Huh, <laughs> yeah, well, this, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. What he's saying is, there's too much baggage. I'm not interested in the widow. And who knows what legal wrangling could take place down the road with this deal. No thanks. Now, things aren't like they used to be. And this is where great-grandma gives you that classic line, well, back in my day, we used to not have these here fancy paper contracts with these fancy pens that you sign and these fancy lawyers that draw up complicated language to protect everyone's interest. Nope, back in my day, if you struck a bargain, you just exchanged sandals. Huh? Yeah, that's what it says in verse 7. Look at this parenthetical note. Great-grandma's letting you know it's not like it used to be. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Isn't that crazy? 
So I got a car to sell somebody after church. If you want to just kind of exchange sandals, we can kind of take care of this. And I don't have much of a better explanation. Sandals on the feet were a big deal. And it even brings back a comparison of the Leverett Law, which is what we've been talking about. It's kind of the backdrop of the story of Ruth here. For example, let me share with you another story about Leverett Law in Deuteronomy 25. Here's what the law says, verse 5. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 says, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. So, ladies, listen up. Like, if a guy asks you to marry you, uh, you should probably check out all of his brothers <laughs> because if something happens to your husband, they're next. <laughs> Verse 6, the first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders who are where? At the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and, and try to talk to him and try to convince him. And if he persists in saying, I don't want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. And then that man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. <gasps> All right, back to our story. Ruth chapter 4, verse 8. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed the sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Milan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Milan's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. And today you are all witnesses. Then all the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Aphratha and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. All right, here's what's happening. Bachelor number two is out of the picture. Boaz is now in the clear as the next kinsman redeemer to take Ruth as his wife. The elders witness the whole thing, and everyone is happy and declares blessings. May Ruth, who I remind you, is a non-Jew, yet the blessing is, may she be just like Rachel and Leah, who together spit out a ton of kids for Jacob and built up Israel. May you have standing. May you be famous. Which, listen, it's been 3,200 years, and we're still talking about Boaz. May your story be similar to Perez, who was born through Judah and Tamar. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And then all the women said to Naomi, remember Naomi, who was so bitter at what happened in her life? Like she said, don't even call me Naomi anymore. I just want to be Mara. But they came to her after the birth to Ruth, and they said, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. 
he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, and listen, she's better to you than seven sons. She's given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, right? Great-grandma's got the, took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Oh, cool. Ruth has a son named Obed, and Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse, wait, what? Yeah. In fact, let's back up just a little bit. In Ruth chapter 4, verse 18, it gives you just a little bit longer genealogy. This, then, is the family line of Prez, who was born to Judah and Tamar. Prez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. King David. Great-grandma has been talking to her great-grandson. You know who he is? The greatest king of Israel. Not just any king. Her great-grandson is King David. And David will be shaped by the story of his family. Because we are always shaped by the stories of our family, for good or bad, most of them dysfunctional, but you know what I'm saying. Because there's power in story. And you probably know what it feels like to have a running narrative in your family. And you say things like this, oh, that's such a Barrington thing to do, or yep, he's a Barrington. And what we mean by that is they're good-looking and charming. That's what we mean. But that's... And within the family, it has its own meaning and understanding. And families will tend to take on characteristics that are unique to them, a shared persona, so to speak. They will determine values and what is appropriate by way of behaviors. There's a very powerful link, even in regards to faith and religious life, based on family. So when David becomes king of Israel, he will be a king that is faithful to God. And the reason why is because of his family story that clearly sees that God is faithful to him. In fact, when you listen to David's psalms, he has so many that a large portion that are all about how God is faithful and shows up to rescue in even the most dire of circumstances. Well, how does David know that? It's his entire family story. It's always been a part of his story. Let me tell you how God rescues. My great-grandma used to tell me, and then she'd share her story. And when she was destitute and in great poverty, God showed up and turned everything around. Let me speak to the grandparents and parents in the room for just a moment. Tell your stories about what God has done in your life. And let me say this, especially to those of you who have tend to think that things spiritual and religious, as, that it's private. Now listen, it's personal, but it ought not to be private. Tell your story, your spiritual religious life. Share your story about the time that God came in and rescued when everything looked dire. Share the story about that time when something tragic happened and God turned it upside down and redeemed it. And don't leave out the dark parts. Those help your kids too. I know we think we're protecting them. And listen, I would say, you know, use some wisdom. You don't need to hear every gory detail. Nobody needs to hear that from great-grandma. But it's okay to acknowledge that there are times in life when it's not all sunshine and rainbows. That time that depression hit you so hard, you wanted to change your name from Naomi to Mara. Or that time that you were in poverty and living in scarcity, about that time when you thought you were ingenious and came up with this idea, and in the end, you came to find out, oh no, it was God all along. 
And this is how the baton of faith is passed on generation to generation. It doesn't happen with you dropping your kid off at LSC Kids. And I'm even for that. It doesn't happen when you send your kid to Element or to Seismic, and I'm for that. It happens when you share your story of faith about what Jesus has done in your life. Because a theological point will always be beat by a theological point plus a personal story. You can say, oh, God's faithful. That's a theological point. But what will always trump that is saying, God is faithful. And let me tell you my story. Now, from the standpoint of the Bible, the reason why Ruth's story is in the Bible is because her great-grandchild is King David. It is a story that emphasizes the line and ancestry of David. And why is this important? I mean, just like if you had to ask the question, how did Ruth get in the Bible? Just four chapters, I mean, kind of a, a Moabite woman. How did this happen? Well, you have to kind of appreciate Israel's history for just a moment. And it tells us even in the book of Ruth that the story, when it takes place, actually begins in the days of the judges. That's what Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 says, right? In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. What's happening is whoever's writing the story down is telling you this story actually happened a long time ago, back when there were judges. Ruth lives in the days of the judges. In fact, what happens is uh, there was a judge and a prophet named Samuel. It's a fine name. Uh, by name of Samuel, who ruled. And one day the people came to him and said, hey, we'd like a king like all the other nations. And it upset Samuel, and Samuel went to God, and God said, all right, no, no, we're going to give the people a king. And so God anointed the first king of Israel. His name was Saul. Ended up not working out. And so Saul then transitioned to King David. King David handed off the throne to his son Solomon. And then after Solomon, civil war broke out, and you, and you had a divided kingdom. It was between two people, Jeroboam, and Rehoboam. Rehoboam was Solomon's son, and he reigned in the south under two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Jeroboam was the son of one of Solomon's officials, and he became king of the north, or the ten tribes in the north. The north in your Bible would always be referred to as Israel, and the south would always be referred to as Judah. Now, you can imagine whenever civil war breaks out, an argument starts to take place in terms of which one is the legitimate succession to David. Is it the Israel tribes in the north, or is it Judah, the tribes in the south? The reason why Ruth is in your Bible is to say, where is Ruth from? Bethlehem. And where is Bethlehem? Judah. The story is to give affirmation and authentication that the rightful line of David stays in Judah, in his ancestry, which we can trace even back through his great-grandmother, Ruth. That is why this book is in the Bible. This is the story of King David. And in a confused and contentious time in the history of Israel, it authenticates the southern tribes and Jerusalem as their capital. But the story of Ruth is also a story of God's mercy and grace. We could talk a lot about God's providential care over Ruth, about how he probably noticed her loyalty and faithfulness to Naomi and because of that chose to bless her. And how Ruth sought refuge in the God of Israel. But the truth is, she's a Moabite. She isn't even Jewish. And if you have any zealous streak for Israel at all, her lack of Jewishness would have been subpar. She would be beneath you. And God uses her to produce the greatest king of Israel who himself would be one-eighth Moabite because of her. And let's not forget chapter 3 has a little risque edge to it. 
There might be a few skeletons in the closet. And as the genealogy goes back to Perez, we're reminded of yet another scandalous story of Judah and Tamar. And what does it show? That God can use anyone. His purposes will not be thwarted. Now let me show you this. There's another man who was born in that same city as Boaz, Bethlehem, and Judah. His name is Jesus. And Matthew records for us his genealogy. And in Jesus' genealogy belong four grandmothers who you would think would be most unlikely to be in the genealogy of the Messiah, the Son of God. Four women who are mentioned outside of his own mother, Mary. The first woman mentioned is Tamar, the one caught up in that sex scandal with her father-in-law, Judah. That's in the genealogy of Jesus, the Son of God. That's got to be a little embarrassing. But not only that, do you know who Boaz's mother was? Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. Remember the story in Joshua? She's not even Jewish, but she used to be a prostitute. That's Boaz's mother, which might explain why Boaz probably doesn't have any problem taking on a Moabite as a wife because his own father did with Rahab. She's in Jesus' genealogy. And then you have Ruth here, who was a Moabite. She wasn't even Jewish. And then the fourth woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus is Bathsheba. Yeah, that Bathsheba. She was married to Uriah the Hittite, but had an affair with King David, who later plotted to kill her husband and did. It was bad. And we don't know for sure, but it's, it might be likely that since Uriah was a Hittite, Bathsheba might have been as well, which would mean she wasn't even Jewish. And right there in Jesus' genealogy, four women, three that most likely weren't even Jewish, three that were caught up in their own sex scandals, and there they are, grandmas in the family tree of Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. God's plan will be carried out one way or the other. God will see to it. In fact, God's plan isn't even contingent on our righteousness. And this is what I really want you to hear from Ruth, because so often we think, oh, I've just blown it in life in this particular way, or I have this particular sin, or this particular struggle, or this particular issue. And we continually make excuses as to what God can't use us, because I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm too this, I'm too that. Some sin jumps to your mind, you go, oh my goodness, I, if anyone knew this was in my life, there's no way. Or some struggle, or some fiasco, or some complete messed up decision that you really did make in life. And guess what? God can still use you. In fact, He only uses people like you. Ruth is a gospel story. And what I mean by that is it encapsulates our good news. And what is our good news? That if you clean up your act, God will finally love you? Or that if you work really hard, God will finally approve of you? Or that if you try with all of your might to fulfill a list of obligations, you can finally earn salvation? That if you can finally be finished with that particular sin, God might be able to bless you? I mean, just try that with your kids. If you try really hard and be perfect, Daddy will love you. If you can obey me all the time, I'll approve of you. Now, that's like setting your kid up for therapy for years to come. That's not good news. That's terrible news. There's nothing good in that. And I get that anywhere in life. The good news, our gospel is, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we had nothing to offer, God paid for it. 
when we were at our weakest, most messed up, wretched state, God said, I choose you. Yeah, but God, I don't have anything to offer. I know, and I still choose you. But God, you might have been sleeping or something, but did you miss this whole part about my life story back here? Like, no, I saw the whole thing, and I still choose you. But God, I'm poor and destitute. I got no standing in society. No one looks up to me for anything. I feel like a complete outsider. Not with with me. I'm going to call you my daughter. And I'm going to call you my son. I don't. God, I don't deserve that. I know. I'm just giving it to you because I love you. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus kept trying to communicate to every person who thought they were on the outside like Ruth or who was marginalized by society like Ruth, who were way less than perfect like Ruth, who maybe had a shady past, who everyone else avoided, who might have been embarrassed or had a shameful occupation or Who knows what scandals in their past? And Jesus says, I know, but the good news of the kingdom is God chooses you. Ruth is the story of gospel, of God fulfilling his promise through people like us. Tell your story, great-grandma. Tell your story, grandpa. Dad, tell your kids your story, the story of good news that God picked you. They need to hear it. Let's stand together. Let's pray. God, what we're grateful for is that you are a God who chose us when we know we had nothing to offer you. In fact, more than having nothing to offer you, what it felt like is we came with a bunch of baggage that if you were making a bet, you were going to lose it. And yet somehow in the story of your son, Jesus, you redeemed our stories. You redeemed all of those circumstances, and you gave us new life. You declared that we would be in your son a whole new creation. So I pray for those who are here this morning who need once again to feel that revelation of how crazy love you are with them, to know that you've chosen them to be your son or your daughter, that you've given them an inheritance that is in your son Jesus that lasts now until eternity. I pray right now that you would let us know that you have chosen us and in it your purposes in our life will not be thwarted and they will be fulfilled. And so we long for that and we ask for that now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.